welcome everyone. Here we are. We are your prime time bitches, your silly trope slayers, the first girls to go. We are a horror podcast hosted by a Black woman and a Latina bringing social justice analysis into the most twisted genre of film horror. I am Crystal representing Black Girl Magic. And I am Sam, your Latina co-host. <laughs> And we are here having a grand old time with each other. In this episode, we're going to talk about La Llorona, uh, specifically The Curse of La Llorona from uh, director Michael Chavez in The Conjuring Universe. A Warner Brothers picture. <laughs> Fun fact of your day. Just found that out. Okay. Look at this learning. We're already going. Also, um, I just have to say, Crystal's title for this episode amazing amazing thank you i really appreciate it i'm trash at titles when it comes to my own writing but like you know the podcast comes through (laughs) (laughs) but here we are the many faces of la llorona cultural dynamics in the weeping woman's tale flawless and in this podcast we're going to be talking to y'all about white savior complexes inter-ethnic dating assimilation and we're even going to throw in a, cl- a comparison to a classic horror film, The Exorcist. So this grand old movie of ours kicks off in this, uh, in, with a flashback to the 1700s in Mexico uh, with the origins of La Llorona. And Sam, our resident Latina, how did they do? What was the quality of this reimagining, of this like classic horror story? So, you know what? I thought they actually did a fairly good job. Um, I'm going to actually dive into some of this right now. So I think they did a pretty decent job in terms of like getting the basic story. However, there's a lot of layers to this narrative that I don't really think you can cover in a movie. So first Mm -hmm. off being, you know, they represented the basic story well, to be fair. And the basic story here is that La Llorona had two children that she drowned and now she wanders around and children should be wary of her because... She might take them away and harm them in some form, potentially drowning them and killing them. So the main purpose of the story is to really keep kids from going out after dark, as is the case with many folk tales. Uh, Also, particularly with this one, a lot of times it seems like a lot of the tradition is to just keep kids away from bodies of water, right? That Mm -hmm. fear that your child's going to drown. So it's better to just tell them, stay away from the water. La Llorona is going to get you. So there are a lot of different versions of this story though. And there's also a lot to unpack there in terms of machismo, sexism, and how people view women there is also a lot of colonialism to unpack. So- Alrighty, I'm excited. What is machismo for our friends who don't know what that means? So machismo, basically rough translation would be misogyny, but it's basically the idea, you know, el macho, the macho man, right? And it's pretty much like a toxic masculinity kind of vibe. Basically, it's this whole idea, um, particularly with Spanish speaking individuals that like men have certain traits, they have to be very masculine, you know, very lots of unhealthy emotional baggage, you don't cry, things like that. But it's pretty much toxic masculinity, misogyny in that range. Got you, got you. Um, All right, so what are the other versions? So we see a variety of variations throughout Latin America, many varying from region to region. Sometimes La Llorona has one child, sometimes she has two, sometimes she has two sons, sometimes she has a boy and a girl, really depends who you're asking. Mm -hmm. In a few versions of the story, she meets a very handsome and wealthy man. He sweeps her off her feet. She has children with him and then he cheats on her and she murders the children by drowning them in a fit of rage, which really paints her in a negative light, right? Like trash mom, you know, like she didn't even think about her kids. But then there's another version where he runs off with another woman and she's in despair and she kills the kids out of despair. Sometimes it's an accident and she kills the children out of neglect. Like she's not paying sufficient enough attention and they happen to drown and then the guilt consumes Mm. her and that's why she's weeping around everywhere. Uh, But what's interesting too is there's another version of the story and it's, you know, that he is married. So the man she falls in love with, he's married to another woman Mm -hmm. and then he has an affair with La Llorona and 
you know, she gives birth to his children. And then he and his wife try to take the children away from her. So she kills them once again out of despair and the desperation of she doesn't want to lose her children. So there's a lot of different versions. One version in particular, which comes from Venezuela. In this version, La Llorona's husband is killed in war and she kills the children once again in despair and frustration from her husband's death. She sees no way out. How is she going to support them, to feed them? So it's really interesting because- Oh, some... so like the Venezuelan version is like a mercy killing? Yeah. Is that where the vibe you're supposed to get? Yeah, it's kind of like a mercy killing. I think the version too, where he where he's trying to steal the children and raise them with his wife, that's also kind of in a way a mercy killing because they're trying to steal her kids. So that's kind of yikes. Um, Seems more for her than them. A <laughs> little bit, a little bit. But, you know, we don't know the context. Maybe this woman is evil. I don't know. I don't know how they're going to raise her kids. I don't know, man. I, I don't know. I don't pretend to know. <laughs> and, and now and now the world will never know because they're gone. Um, okay, but going back to, like, the origins of the story. So the origin of the story is highly debated, um, but most people agree it's rooted in colonialism and... It's interesting, well, it's kind of like rooted in colonialism meets a lot of the indigenous narratives. So what's interesting mm. is, once again, there's different sides to the story of La Llorona, everything from a sympathetic character to a true monster. And the origin of the story is another mystery entirely. So some scholars trace the origin of La Llorona back to an Aztec legend, Guatlicue. I hope I'm doing that right. So according to one of the many legends, Guatlicue, wept for her Aztec children during the night of the Spanish conquest. So that version is kind of derived from um, an indigenous goddess and the weeping at the conquest that the Spaniards are doing by colonizing the Aztec people. Mm -hmm. However, other origins have traced the story back to the story of La Malinche. And some argue that La Malinche and La Llorona are the same person. Some argue that mm. they're not, but they are. there is a lot of overlap in terms of the story. When looking at these legends, you can look at them separately or together, but for this particular podcast, I think we're going to look at them kind of like an overlapping similar narrative together. According okay. to records, La Malinche was critical to the Spanish conquest of Mexico. Much like La Llorona, she's depicted as either a sympathetic victim or sometimes she's depicted as an evil person, a traitor to her people. La Malinche mm. was one of a number of enslaved indigenous people given over Ooh. to Hernán Cortés, the infamous Ooh. Spanish conquistador. She acted as an interpreter, an advisor, an intermediary for Cortés. According to most reports, she became Cortés's lover and it is speculated that she fell in love with him. Again, there's a lot of power dynamics here, lots to unpack there. Um, they had right. a child together who according to legend was the first mestizo child, so the first child of mixed European and indigenous race in the Americas. Mm. And however, Cortez abandoned La Malinche and she was quickly married off to one of his companions and she is reportedly- Oh, you hate to see it. Yes, reportedly devastated. So many people draw comparisons between the story of La Malinche and the story of La Llorona because the stories are very similar in terms of a beautiful woman falls for a handsome man and then he betrays her. And then there's also another betrayal in terms of La Llorona, in a way, betrays her children, you know, by murdering mm -hmm. them. And La Malinche mm. betrays her people. And in a way, also, in a, not inadvertently, like, because of the help she gives Cortez, he slaughters an entire group of people. And Especially, like, thinking of that as, like, a generational, like, the generational impact of, like, La Malinche's um, actions of, like, the children being representative of, like, future generations who have been screwed over by this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's pretty interesting. Uh, it's also important to note that both of these women, La Malinche and La Llorona, are intensely mm -hmm. antagonized in some versions of their story. You know, La Llorona is seen as a monster who murders her children because of a man. And however, you could see it as she does this as an act of desperation or a mercy killing to keep someone from taking her children or in another case, because she doesn't know what she's going to do without her husband, right? La Malinche mm -hmm. is seen as a traitor to her own people in assisting the Spaniards in conquering Mexico. But history notes that she was enslaved and likely had no real say in her service to the Spaniards 
and in her relationship with Cortez. Um, literally. Literally. So whatever the case may be, I personally think both these women or both of these versions of women, you know, demonstrated through history, there's an intense antagonization of women, both in folklore and in history. Because misogyny spans across cultures and contexts. How heartbreaking. Alrighty then. So that was our analysis of the first like five minutes of the movie. This is not a game. We are in this, y'all. And like, so we find out that she's like this new single parent because her husband's recently died. So she's always like, so she's discombobulated and often late to work and late to getting her kids to school. So given that we started this movie with this like, Uh, Mexican family and now we're flashing forward to like this white basically family you're probably thinking oh this is like a side character or an antagonist or like this is just like a segueing point because like in this movie that's based off of a Latinx legend like surely our lead is going to be a Latina woman because of course and like and if that was your thought process you have way too much faith in Hollywood but I love it you're in a better world. So uh, we see this white woman is our lead throughout the rest of the movie. Her name is Anna and she has the most white savior job of any job someone could have. She's a social worker. This is just great. This is so perfect. So so, friend, can you define what a white savior is for our audience? uh, Like white saviors uh, and like white saviors in media specifically, the white savior narrative is one of like a story of communities of color being uplifted and saved by a benevolent white protagonist. Uh, These characters tend to follow very like similar and consistent behavioral and narrative patterns of like a strong-willed, morally uh, righteous progressive that's being excluded by their other privileged peers because they want to do what's right. They're not like other girls. They they have human decency. So you're really supposed to be into them (laughs) and root for them. One of the most problematic aspects of this trope is that like in these stories that about people of color and they're like building movements and fighting against systems of oppression. The the narrative is focused on this white person rather than centering a narrative about marginalized people and their perspective and experiences. We instead are encouraged to focus on the feelings and thoughts of white people, just like literally every other movie. (laughs) Even in movies that are supposed to be about like problems marginalized communities face, people of color being silenced within what it should be our stories. Um, so our white savior, our basically perfect white lead overcomes the issues of systemic racism, intergenerational trauma and terror within a two and a half hour movie. Very realistic about fighting oppression. Life-changing. Wow. Incredible. All we needed was a benevolent white savior to come in and fix everything. Um, and again, one of the key reasons for why this is problematic is because it erases all the labor and organizing efforts of people of color um, and and advocacy for our own rights and voices. Um, And this tends to be the case in both entertainment and historical memory. Uh, So naturally, it's very unsurprising that these movies tend to be created by white writers and directors, but it's even more disappointing when creatives of color fall or are forced into following this trope, uh, which... I name out because this film is directed by um, a Mexican-American director. And I think it's very telling that even with diversity of leadership, we still fall into this problem. And white savior films are harmful, not only in the narratives they perpetuate, but also in the opinions they establish in their audiences. Uh, a A psychology research study found that like, after watching white savior films, audiences were more likely to like have a colorblind ideology. Colorblindness being like this idea of I don't see color, racial differences should be ignored. And this sounds like a good, like good old American values of like welcome, uh, of being open and welcoming and looking past people's differences. But what it actually is, is the erasure of like cultural differences and histories that are of great value to marginalized people. That is, white savior movies make people feel like the issue of race has been solved um, 
which pushes them to react negatively towards initiatives to address racial injustice, such as like affirmative action and blaming marginalized communities problems on like laziness or feeling it being entitled. Going back to the horror of it all, there's another horror example of white saviors in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, where that film is about a white intact, a white protagonist inspiring an indigenous man to break out of the insane asylum they're trapped into. Because prior to this white man showing up, our indigenous character has shows no motivation to leave and is just content to stay there and rot. <laughs> but this white man has come to inspire him to fight and like leave, which playing into another problematic feature of the white savior uh, trope of marginalized people being passive in their own problems and needing a white person to inspire change. Um, and Sam actually has some interesting takes on this particular example because Sam read the book because she's an English oh. major. So I read so the book Sam, in my teens. How, did, so I read I read the book in my teens, and I just think it's super interesting. What a pretentious teenager! Okay, you know what? I I was I also watched the movie in my teens. I was just one of those teens, you know. I, um, and I think Sam's point of like oppression and like control goes back to La Llorona, and that like this story also focuses on like this white woman um, and that narrative. And in focusing on her, we lose uh, the context of that we would have had if with a Latina lead. So it's just, it's just disappointing. I'm not mad, I'm disappointed. <laughs> a stronger example, more closely tied to horror would be pretty much any of the Purge movies that focus on all these issues of like systemic oppression and injustice, but we always have white leads until like the most recent Purge movie. It took four movies for them to realize we should have a person of color as the lead. <laughs> Um, facts, facts. <laughs> we'll get to the purge another day if y'all want us to. Let us know in the comments if you want us to talk about the purge. Okay, so back to this good old story. Mm. Uh, we see our we see our lead Anna get in late to work, and her boss wants to lower her caseload, um, which she's completely not down for because these are her families. Uh, screw making sure these families are able to get like quality support and like more time like because she has her pride to be concerned with um so uh Anna heads out to do a wellness check on two boys uh the Alvarez because they've been missing from school a good minute um and this is our introduction to the Alvarez family so Anna goes into the house snoops around looking for the children who haven't been seen finding a door locked with a bunch of religious symbols on it and Pat Patricia or Patricia attacks her. Um, <laughs> why did you say it that way? <laughs> Our black cop saves Anna. <laughs> so Anna goes to check with the two boys and a police officer who is her late husband's former partner because our Latino, um, because for some reason this, uh, Latinx man decided to be a cop. We're going to talk about that later. Um, so she goes to the Alvarez house with her um, husband's uh, for, former partner um, who saves Anna from uh, Patricia Alvarez. Um, and we see that the children are like locked in a closet with like burns on their arms. Which I thought was so weird. Which I thought was so weird because why do they have burns on their arms? Nowhere did I find any evidence that La Llorona burns your arms. Like, I just, why aren't they wet yeah, or something? Why didn't we try to drown these kids? Why Why did we uh, burn them? Because her big thing is water, right? Even if we had found bruises, you know, like bruises on their shoulders, you know, like that makes sense because she's holding them down or something. But I just, I don't understand why they have burns on their arms. And I just had to express that. You know, I think it's very valuable to express that. Okay, so important to recognize that outside the context of a horror film, like taking these kids out of this very sketchy closet and like saving them would be the noble and right thing to do. <laughs> but Anna in entering this home and taking these kids has screwed these children over twofold. Because one, they're now they're in the foster care system, which is freaking trash, especially for people of color. And two, she's doomed them to be murdered by a ghost. Facts, facts, facts. Uh, so, so 
basically the Alvarez boys are sent to St. Victoria's Catholic Charities. We go to this like a Catholic foster care place and I really thought that we were gonna have this moment of like all right this movie's gonna talk about like religious trauma and like where is the foster care system like this could be so interesting like this is not where I thought the movie was gonna go but like this is creative in its own right no we don't get any of that um but it's interesting that this um like foster care center whatever it's called, is named after St. Victoria because Sam did research. Because Sam is yeah, Catholic. Yeah, so it's in all my Catholicism, right? Raised Catholic, went to Catholic school for 12 years. Hashtag don't do that to your kids. Um, but anyhow, <laughs> anyhow, so it's interesting that Patricia Alvarez, um, or it's interesting that they go to St. Victoria's because St. Victoria, you know, I mean, obviously she's a saint in the Catholic church, but she's also a martyr. Right. And so to be a martyr, you basically have to sacrifice your life in the name of God, et cetera. That's kind of the rule, the general rule here. Usually your death is pretty awful, but basically she's a martyr because she was killed after rejecting the advances of a, of a man who was a pagan or, you know, he was not Catholic. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting because you, you kind of have this, this sort of narrative going and it's just, I don't know if they actually thought this through or if they just stuck St. Victoria's on there, but I just thought mm. it was intriguing because in a way you have yet another woman, right? Being mistreated by a man, right? Being betrayed mm. by a man in this mm. context. And this is where the boys go and eventually meet their fate. So it's just, it's, it's just intriguing anyhow. And this kind of goes yeah, into that- our conversation on religious trauma and Catholicism and colonialism because because if the movie's not going to talk about it we can this is our show exactly welcome to our super in-depth analysis so i think something important to address when it comes to this film is religious trauma and trauma in general associated with catholicism and colonialism catholicism unfortunately so was the religion of the conquistadores from spain Because of this, there's a lot of trauma associated with the unwilling conversion that went on with the people who were already inhabiting the Americas before the Spaniards came along. The indigenous communities in the Americas did not have a choice when it came to converting to Catholicism. It's also important Mm -hmm. to note that a lot of the sacred sites for indigenous people were converted into Catholic churches and missions. And so you have this forced conversion into Catholicism, as well as like this destruction of sacred grounds and sacred land for these people. And it's interesting because Crystal, when we were talking, you sort of brought up this example about Anna and Father Betis when they were watching um, the indigenous folks at the funeral. Because I thought it was really interesting, like watching that scene and uh, made me want to talk about religious trauma because Anna and Father uh, Perez from, also in the Conjuring universe from Annabelle, like watching these um like indigenous folks like utilize um like smudging which is like um like burning sage and like waving the smoke around during like the alvarez boys funerals because again good old anna took them out of the safety their mother placed them in so now those boys are tragically gone um and like they and like in their funerals uh they're doing this like smudging ritual um and I thought a lot about how, how like removed the two of them are as they're like watching um, this like funeral procession and the way it's edited is like this tone of them uh, of like these two allowing these like savages to go about like the rituals like it's it shot in a very cold manner. Um, Almost condescending if you think about it. it. Like, the vibe is very condescending, and, like, Sam brought up the point that he straight up says, like, yeah, smudging isn't, um, like, part of Catholicism, but, like, I'll, I let them do that because it brings them comfort, mm-hmm. like, which ironically is what, like, a lot of atheists say about, like, Christians of, like, yeah, I get that, like, praying brings you comfort, but um, in the same, like, vibe of being condescending, so I think it's very interesting again was that intentional probably not but maybe (laughs) and you know kind of going off this idea of father betis um you know father betis i guess it's critical to note that while many missionaries are painted in history 
as being kind and benevolent to the indigenous people of Latin America, many of them were actually cruel and ruthless. Missionaries were known for kidnapping indigenous people's children and converting them to Christianity through forced methods. Conquistadors and missionaries worked hand in hand in the brutal conquest and slaughtering of indigenous people. And I think one quote in particular that sums it up is one made by Hernan Cortes himself in a letter where in speaking of eliminated sacred, in speaking of eliminating sacred indigenous sites and replacing them with Catholic imagery, he says, the most important of these idols and the ones in whom they have the most faith, I had taken from their places and thrown down the steps. No respect here, no respect for sacred land, for other people's culture, community, no respect whatsoever. And so there's a lot of trauma with colonialism associated with the Catholic faith, and yet an incredibly large population of Latin American people are Catholic. Therefore, there's a lot of friction, a lot of tension between the Catholicism and the indigenous traditions that still exist in Latin America today. Literally, which is so interesting to think about, especially with, in terms of like, there being some sense of like, claiming indigenous identity in like the Latinx community because identity is so complicated because again of what you're bringing up here of like colonialism and like the like uh, awful things that happen within here to talk about Anna and her uh, husband's relationship whose name was David I had to look I had to look hard to find this uh, dead dad's name his name's David um who we see a picture of like once and like we know their last names are Garcia. Literally once. No. <laughs> it was so quick. Once. Fair listener, it was so quick. I did not realize this family was supposed to be half Latino. Like <laughs> literally Sam was looking at my notes. He's like, what do you mean like inter-ethnic dating? They're all white. <laughs> which I'm like, no. But the, which greatly shows the point I'm making here of this family's basically white. Um, in this movie about like this Latinx legend that's supposed to bring like diversity and then the Codron universe, they're basically white. Um, and so I wanted to talk th- a minute about uh, Anna and David's relationship and inter-ethnic like relationships and dating. And I wanted to, br- I want to bring this in the conversation because in order for this family to exist, a romantic relationship between a white woman and a Latino has to exist, obviously. Um, and like, and when you're in a relationship with someone of a different race or ethnicity, uh, a decision has to be made about how you're going to raise your kids and like what you're going to expose your children to as part of both your cultures. Um, and because I'm a nerd, in case you haven't realized that uh, the girls who are like analyzing race and horror movies are nerds. Um, I looked at, I looked up some studies about like around interracial or, or inter-ethnic dating in our case and found some fun facts. That is people who are date outside of their racial or ethnic group have like lower, identify less with their uh, ethnic group, meaning they feel less connected to their race as like part of their identity. If you think about like how we introduce this podcast, we're like, I'm a black woman and we're with Sam, my Latina best friend, and we're gonna talk about race. Um, and you can see that like those identities for us are very like salient and important to who we are. But for people who um, like date outside their racial group, that's like less, that's uh, research has shown that to less so be the case. Um, which is not to say one's better than the other, but like when you're thinking about like the cultural impact of interethnic dating, it's important to consider. Um, but I also looked at another study uh, done about like which racial groups are more likely to date outside of their uh, racial or ethnic group. And so like the study found that like about half of Latinos date outside of their, dated interracially. Um, but Catholic Latinos were specifically found to be less likely to do so, which I think makes sense when you think about how like big the Catholic church is in the Latinx community, which as Sam has greatly pointed out is rooted in colonialism and oppression, but is still to be the case now, which makes it even weirder to me that these two got together because we're told that, um, 
Anna tells us that like David was the religious one. Like when Anna's talking to Father Perez, she says like David, my husband was the religious one, not me. And so as I was watching this movie, I'm just like, how did this white atheist woman get with this deeply Catholic Latino man? (laughs) It is honestly the single biggest plot hole in the entire film. I'm calling it. (laughs) calling it out the very premise of this relationship is sketched us um and you can definitely date outside of your race um and like religion i'm just saying when you start combining all these differences like, like did we get along do y'all have anything in common do y'all even value the same things? did we get along we hear nothing about like the quality of the relationship we just know she's a morning but like we have a picture your partner could like we have a picture fighting every day and going through it and you would still miss them if they died mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we have a picture and she's sad and that's all we know about their dynamic um and really, I think what this mainly boils down to is that the writers and directors of this movie are completely disconnected from the community they should be representing, which is why POC people should be representing and writing and leading our own projects about us. If you learn nothing from this, learn that, friends. Um, but I bring up, up these like dynamics of like inter-ethnic dating um, and relationships because like a key anxiety behind these relationships is one surrounding assimilation and cultural erasure of minoritized communities uh, being being that like in like dating outside of your race and marrying outside of race and making families like outside of your race you're getting closer to whiteness and further away from uh like being a minority or marginalized community which and in chasing whiteness you don't tell your children these like legends about la your own you don't teach your kids spanish um and so when they encounter things within their like culture things that people would expect them to know they sit there like a dummy and get swooped on by the evil ghosts um and that leads so, us into assimilation friend what is assimilation it does what is assimilation? Assimilation is essentially, it's largely um, considered around like immigrants coming like to another country. This idea of like a fully, um, in our context, fully like Americanizing of distancing yourself from like your country of origin or your home country um, and like fully like Americanizing. You don't like speak Spanish because everybody in America speaks English. You don't talk about like your traditions or uh, cultural or like heritage because you're American now, that stuff shouldn't mean anything to you. And I wanted to bring assimilation into this conversation because um, we're like looking at these two like basically fully assimilated children, despite the fact that their uh, father is Latino and presumably uh, spoke Spanish. We don't actually know pretty much anything about dad. And you know, that's something that is huge in the Latinx community. It has a huge effect on the community because a lot of Latin American countries are grounded um, in colorism and in the idea of mestizaje and la raza cosmica. And these are traditions that are brought into Latinx communities in the United States as well. So just a brief breakdown, mestizaje is the idea of people of different races coming together in a union, usually marriage, and then giving birth, of course, to mixed race children. La raza cosmica is a concept connected to this because the idea is that people of all sorts of races and cultures will blend together to form a new race. And this race would hold some sort of superiority over all the others. Um, That's what this concept basically describes. And of course, it's problematic. Of course, it's not a great concept. And the idea, the reason it's been deemed as problematic is because mestizaje and la raza cosmica in practice is really about further erasing indigenous and black communities as a racial group and holding the white European looking people as the superior group. So really it's about, you know, interracial, interethnic dating, and having that continue to the point where you have erased all indigenous and black aspects of people, which is really disturbing when you think about it. We went dark. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) We got dark, but like, look, we're talking about indigenous and racial issues, and this history is dark, friends. Um, So yes, and we talk about all of this and looking at 
the children's reaction to like meeting La own and encountering this um like mythical being that like even she Loki expects them to know who she is because she starts talking to them in Spanish like there's like even she's expecting them to be somewhat well on the level that they're just not and it's interesting and again just a, a quick sidebar I think it's interesting too because I think that really shows that the the legend they're going with right well and and that's really consistent in all the legends is she's really trapped in time because ultimately what she's doing is looking for the souls of her children she's looking for her children and so if you really think about it she's really trapped in that moment in time and she's not really concerned with what's going on it's very like i have a goal the goal is to find the kids where are the kids Hmm. so i don't know i thought that was intriguing back to the good old plot like now like the kids are sleepwalking and sam i would like to ask you a question about the legend does yes. Lyurana like mess with doors a lot is that a thing i i you're on follow you home <laughs> here's my thing at least from what i understand you know maybe there's there's a lot of versions to this story but the the basic premise is being outside alone or being next to a body of water so for example that whole scene with the pool or all the stuff with like just water in general. I'm like, okay, that makes sense. But the fact that she invades their home is a little weird because she's basically supposed to be a wanderer. She's supposed to wander outside and the whole danger is supposed to be outside. The whole idea is if you're inside, you should be safe. At least that's always been my understanding. And from what I could find, that's most people's understanding. But Mm -hmm. hey, we got to make the Conjuring Universe movie. So She's we got to make this Conjuring Universe movie. So she's going to haunt a house because God forbid it's not a haunted house for once. Exactly. See, I, I even would have thought, oh, okay. What if she like gets them to come outside? Uh, there's just other ways we could have done this. And she kind of does get them to come outside later on. But I just thought it was weird that we didn't start from there. Why, why, why are doors? What's going on? I don't know. I don't know what's going on. The one scene inside that I will give them that really... That I thought was pretty doggone good was the bathtub. Absolutely. I thought that was so that creative. That was great. That was really good tension and like... I was... It kind of... It just really... It kind of got me because for a second I was like, oh, she like misses her kids and she's just going to wash her hair. Like for a split second I thought, oh, maybe she's not going to do anything to her. And that's when they there's, you. That's there's the a tender narrative here. There's a... Te- no, no, there's no... No, we're going to... Okay. <laughs> no, never mind. I thought maybe we'd get a reveal of like Lyrona as like one of the many sympathetic backstories behind her. And we were I thought we were making space for that. We weren't, but great scare. But again, why are we inside? And so in that interrogation that Anna has no right to be a part of, we find out that like Patricia Alvarez prayed to Lyrona um to take uh Anna's kids instead of her own which I really want to point out that makes zero sense like I want to clarify that that is not that is problematic that is confusing that is not accurate at least in my understanding because she's not a I mean I mean, if we connect it back to the goddess narrative, yes, but nobody really sees La Llorona in terms of the modern world. She's seen as a folktale, as a legend. A mm-hmm. ghost is fine, but to say I pray to La Llorona, that's just strange to me. And even they could have even framed it, in my opinion, in terms of like, I pleaded with her. I would have still said, okay, valid. You pleaded with this ghost creature thing. But my mm-hmm. thing is, we really said prayed and I just think that's not accurate. That's not accurate at all because she's not, she's a, she's a very negative entity and it just seems very like, it doesn't make sense to me. It didn't make sense to me. If they had said, we could have just switched out a word there and it would have made way more sense. Um, Especially because we've seen like Patricia Alvarez, like she's, she's Catholic and like, you know what I mean? It just, what is happening right now? Um, Literally like she wasn't even with like, the indigenous folks that were like doing like indigenous practices like we see she's like close to father Perez she's like a practicing catholic we see the big old uh like rosary uh around her neck at one point um so it makes zero sense it makes zero sense that she would pray to la llorona i 
And I, again, we could have said, I pleaded with her. That would have made, that would have been fine. I would have been like, that makes sense. You're trying to negotiate with a ghost. Okay, cool. Negotiations always works great. So like, why is Lyrona targeting this family when she killed the boys anyway? (laughs) That's what doesn't make, like, and here's my thing. There was no reason to antagonize Patricia. Like, to me, this just goes back to, oh, we're just going to antagonize a woman of color. Like, we're just going to antagonize a Latina just for the hell of it. Because Because the white woman has to be the victim. Because the whole premise of La Llorona is the minute she saw those kids, they were screwed. Like, they were in trouble. Because the whole premise is you should not be out there alone because the minute she sees you, she's going to, like, stalk you and stuff and take you. And I just, to me, there was no reason to add that extra layer because, really, it is about the fact that Anna took her kids to a scene of a crime with the ghost still there. So that's the issue. Not, Not Patricia praying to La Llorona, which her character would not do, but. But like, I think, and I think maybe the reason they did that is because, again, to your point, the story is all about like kids wandering off or kids like, there's a level of kids being responsible and that they were disobedient and like went off to do something they shouldn't have been doing. When these kids would have much rather have been asleep in their beds and their mom dragged them out of bed. It's all Anna's This is all Anna's fault. (laughs) This this entire thing, like even the fact that the boys are dead, it's all her fault. I'm sorry, but it's all her fault. And like, you know, I really don't think she has a moment of like feeling the weight of that is what I think they really wanted. Nope. She, she goes to Patricia, blindly root for her. And then and she like, goes to the priest. And then she goes to the curandero. She's just like, hello, Latinos, She's just really bouncing between all of these brown people and like fix my problems i'm the victim fix the mess i have made by ignoring all of you yes but sam is like really segueing this transition of like going to a a shaman for help so like we now that all of the family knows that we're haunted and screwed where do we go the church of course so we go back to father perez who's like and who makes an annabelle reference in case you were really dying to know if we're in the Conjuring universe, we are. Um, I just want to point out, I totally missed that reference. Therefore, I did not know we were in the Conjuring universe until I saw your notes. Moving on. Like, we we had to work hard. We were like, why is this movie set in 1973? It makes no sense. <laughs> and it's the Conjuring reference. That's the only reason we're in this time frame, y'all. <laughs> um, so we go to the church and he's like, and Father Perez is like, I mean, we could schedule like an exorcism. Is that what he says? He says an exorcism, right? I believe it's an exorcism. Yeah, I think. But he's like, but low key, there's like a lot of bureaucracy behind that. And that's going to take a minute. <laughs> and this seems like a now problem Which, for you all. To be fair, fun fact, as the resident Catholic in this podcast, Teach that us. is actually true. If you want an exorcism, it has to go through a bunch of bishops and cardinals and even to the Pope in many cases to be approved as a sanctioned exorcism. Like you can't just go to a priest and say, hey, man, I need an exorcism. And the priest is like, hey, let's do it. That That's not how it works. Like there actually is a lot of bureaucracy and a lot of stuff involved because it has to be sanctioned as an official exorcism by the catholic church the priest can't just act on his own which i think is fascinating but anyhow anyhow but like also quite like relevant and because sam brought this up i'm gonna bring up this point now like as we were both watching the movie we were kind of reminded of the exorcist yes um and like big like vibes like there of just like this like father this like mother going to a priest and being help me with like my instead of daughter it's like kids um but also what I was really inspired to think about was like this breakdown of like what a family is supposed to look like um and like this movie like La is targeting this family who doesn't have a father figure similar to how the demon and the exorcist targets Raven Reagan who doesn't really have a relationship with her father we see that like he doesn't show any interest in his kid um and the demon and the spirit in both cases 
is only uh, beaten when a masculine authority figure enters the picture. And the exorcist is like the two priests. In this, it's the Corandero, who we're going to talk about more in a second, um, who like take control of the situation. And we see uh, the film, and we see in La Llorona, the movie explicitly draws a comparison between the dad and um, the Corandero as like both of them being Latino, which like, let's be real, is probably enough for like half of the audience right there. I'm just saying. <laughs> Look, if you have opted into this podcast, you are, eight, and you've made it this far, you are down into like learning about race. So like, you know, deep down that's true. Um, but there's also the scene where uh, Corandero is like in their house and he's helping them fight the demon until like, he makes breakfast for dinner because he's trying to like lighten up the bad vibes with the kids and Anna's like my husband used to do that all the time so there's implicit and explicit comparisons between uh the current era was like a father figure and, and in the case of the exorcist like priests literally being referred to as like father and like just men and men in Christianity in general tend to be associated with fatherhood um and like husband is and like also like her husband David was religious just like the Corandero um because they're in Father Perez's office he's like look getting an official exorcism is going to take you a long time which is why I think in the exorcist Reagan is so like terrifying by the time the priests get to her mm. because I think they went through like the official process, which can take months. Mm. So like that family was just going through it in that in between. Um, and they're like, uh, and so he's like, instead of waiting months because your kids will probably be dead by then, I'm gonna like send you to like this uh, Corandero who used to be with the church and is religious, but like he does, he doesn't really mess with like the institution of the church. So they had a parting of ways. And I think that's um, interesting. They, mm-hmm. I think that's interesting because it brings us back to colonialism and the institution of the Catholic Church and how the curandero and like all the curandero stuff, like that's really rooted in indigenous culture. And I just think it's really interesting that he's got this whole like identity crisis here with his faith, like, you know, with the church, but then it's also he's a curandero, so that doesn't really fly with the church. And so it's this whole like, Oh my gosh, we're back in colonialism. Um, yeah, anyhow. and it's also like interesting in like comparing it to The Exorcist because like also the older priest there was having a crisis of faith, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which is why he lost against the demon. Spoilers for The Exorcist. Sorry, <laughs> but if you but if you haven't seen it by now, you weren't gonna watch it anyway. But going back to uh, so the priest Father Perez recommends that they go to this uh, Corandero. Sam, what the fuck is a Corandero? Please correct my pronunciation. I'm sure I'm fucking, I'm messing it up. You're okay, friend. So a Corandero is, they're basically like a healer of some kind. Um, I think when you said shaman, that was fairly accurate. Um, But basically they are, you know, in the Latino community, they're Curanderos and they're kind of alternative medicine, quote unquote, as you know, Western medicine would call it. But they do different things. They do limpias, they do sort of rituals. They use a lot of herbal medicine, um, a lot of different, like I said, rituals and stuff. In in this film, we actually see him do the egg thing, which is a very common thing, especially with like Mexican curanderos and a few other types of curanderos throughout Latin America. You see the egg and the egg is supposed to kind of absorb all the negative energy, all the bad stuff in you. Um, they do limpias, which limpias are kind of like what he's doing, which is basically like you take all that negative energy out of a person, out of their presence. Um, they're supposed to help sometimes with alleviating el mal de ojo. And el mal de ojo is uh, the equivalent of a curse. When someone looks bad upon you or wishes bad upon you, sometimes that's mm-hmm. going to have an effect on you. So you need to see right. a curandero so he can cleanse you of all that negative energy. So mm-hmm. they're kind of they're kind of somewhere in between an herbalist and also sort of a spiritual healer. Um, okay. Interesting. So you would you so would you say like the depiction of the like ritual like with the egg um 
would you say that that's a good adaptation? Or like- I thought that was okay. Yeah. So I was, I was watching that pretty closely. So I've never personally had that. Right. But um, what's interesting to me is I thought they did it respectfully enough and it was pretty accurate in terms of like, you know, there, there is, I've heard a lot of, a lot of people I know have gone to a curandero and that's kind of what they do. Mm-hmm. It's interesting how he does it, but you know, a lot of times, so people will have either a gut problem or pain somewhere and a doctor can't really find what's happening. So then mm-hmm. there's this belief that it's coming from a negative place from somebody wishing bad on you. So what they do mm-hmm. is they rub the egg around your whole body. And then when they open it, you know, it's black inside, it's all gooey, it's rotted. So mm. it's so supposedly the egg absorbs all of that bad, right? It takes all of that mm. on and then you dispose of it. We know that he's won her best shot and two knows a lot more about this than her. It's like, what's the point of her trying to play the skeptic in the third act of the movie? <laughs> yeah, I also don't understand playing the skeptic. Like by this point, you know, there's a ghostly entity haunting you and you were pretty down for an exorcism. So I just don't get what is going on. I don't, I don't understand excuse me, I don't understand why we're still skeptical if we we know what's going on. I mean, honestly, at that point, I would try anything. Like, my gosh. Literally. Like, when I see the haunt, when I see the ghost in my house, I'm really open to any solution. Like, I'll bathe in the egg yolks, okay? (laughs) Like, I'm down. I I don't know. I don't know. That they thought about the script with the same intensity that we are, because you don't believe it. Even if you say it, I know you don't believe it deep down. Anywho. Okay, so now we're moving on like to the next um ritual and they talk about like these like fire trees um that have like special power over La Llorona. Um and which we have seen no indication of and Sam like is that a thing? Is there like I have no idea, dude. Is there, I, I, I have not found Is there a weapon against La Llorona? <laughs> Listen, man, the weapon of against La Llorona is to listen to mom and dad and stay inside and away from water. That's the- what do you do when your mom drags you out of bed in the middle of the night towards water? You know, I was about to say something, but I'm gonna just keep it to myself. But um poor babies. <laughs> All I'm saying is poor babies, mother, please educate yourself. I mean, okay, even here's my thing, even outside of the context of this film. Why did we drag our children to a crime scene? Anyhow, and, <laughs> and um, on that, and on that, like uplifting, lighthearted note, that uplifting. was our analysis of the Curse of La Llorona. Follow the podcast if you want to see the next episode. Follow us at First Girls to Go on all your social media: Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Hey, uh, thank y'all so much for hanging with us for this podcast. Have a good one.